Y'all, we're in Genesis 6. And uh, just by, uh, by way of reminder, um, yeah, y'all, we don't, we don't want what we do to be something that you just do like in an English literature class. I have a master's in, in English. I've taught college classes. I've taught 7th through 12th grade. I, I know what it means to take a text and just kind of break it apart. If we're just teaching and we're not proclaiming the goodness of God, then, then we're totally missing it. Like, the gospel is here also. Um, Christ, from the beginning to the end, is the one who, who's very present, and everything is looking forward to him or looking back at him, but then also looking forward to his future coming. So I don't want this to, I don't want us to be like, okay, so how do we break this apart, and, and it's a scholarly exercise. You know, I pray that as we read this and as we push into it, that we do understand the text, but that our awareness of who God is becomes so much greater. If we leave this place and, and we're talking about, um, and you're talking about me and you're doing the pastor, um, what do you call that, the, pra- the pastor evaluation, um, the sermon reflection, and, and, you know, and it's all kind of focused on what we just did here instead of who we did it for, then to be quite honest, we missed our mark uh, as leaders. But yeah, we're in Genesis 6, and it's a big chunk. Um, if you remember, I sent this, this out to you a couple of days ago, and I said, hey, Genesis 6, 11 through 8, 19. And whenever we break this down verse by verse, by my pacing, I mean, I figure we got 4th of July, your calendars are clear. We got a good three to four hours here because we're talking like two full chapters of a lot. Of, I'm just joking, Caleb. It's not that long. It's only like 57 minutes. Okay, so um, the heart was that y'all read it in its entirety because... If we're not careful on this passage, we can get lost in the weeds. And, and what I mean by that is we begin to focus on this one and we get into apologetics and, and we get into, well, let's really squeeze the nuance out of this word and, and, and we totally miss the point, right? You ever sit down and, and you sit down with a, a storyteller and they're telling you this story and, and you, you're not allowed to interrupt. You just have to hear the whole story because at the end of the story, then it all kind of comes together and, and you understand everything in context and a lot of your questions are gone. So that was kind of the hardest. Let's not just hear part of the story and then another part of the story and then another part of the story, but let's actually just, I just want you to see it in its entirety. And I figured you knew it. Everybody, right, in Arkansas, in the Bible Belt, especially in the South, we all know the story of Noah and the ark. We put it in nurseries. We have animals on the wall. We have, like, um, everybody's happy. We, we look at children's books, and, and, uh, and I know I've referred to this over the last couple of weeks, but I want us to kind of take a new gravity with it. But we look at children's books and, and those children's Bibles, and as we open them, then everybody's happy on the ark, and everybody's waving, and the happy giraffe has his head sticking out the window, and the parrot's sitting on it. I mean... Um, uh, Kinley and I were reading uh, Noah's Ark in her Bible the other day and there's all these animals kind of crammed in there but they're all still happy and everything's just you know joyful oh this is a dark story it really is a dark story with such great light at the end of it too right but I wanted you to read all of that so that so that today as we're kind of jumping in and out and hitting high points that you ultimately knew where we were going so I want you to know the whole story. Just so you know, as we move through the rest of Genesis, um, once we hit Genesis 12 on through, then, then there, is, there are narrative chunks. So we're not always going to do, you know, these five verses. That works great for some passages. For others, 
You need all 50 of these verses. You need to read the whole thing so that you understand the context of what we're about to preach. And so um, Genesis 12 through, through 50, that's what you can get used to, is reading about three to four of, of those chapters. And then we'll come in and we're going to break them down. So here we go. Like you have read, hopefully, Genesis 6, 11 through 8, 19. And if you haven't, then whenever you leave here today, then, then please do that. But we're just going to hit three things. Of course, three, right? But number one, the key points. We're going to spend some time on the key points. We're going to jump from like verse to verse, making sure that we hear the, the narrative. So if you did not read 611 through 819, then you're going to get the cliff note version today. Like you're going to get that condensed version. But I want us to make sure that we get those verses. And then two major questions. Why the flood and why the ark? Why the flood and why the ark? If you read the whole narrative and you're talking to someone because you're trying to disciple them and you're drinking coffee and they just read Genesis 6 or 8 with you, then you've ultimately got to be able, be able to answer those two questions. Why the flood and why the ark? You don't have to remember the original Hebrew of this. You don't have to remember the timeline. You don't have to remember the cubit measurements. You don't have to remember all that. But you definitely, most definitely need to be able to answer why that flood and why the ark. All right, so here we go. So we're going to jump in to Genesis 6, 11. This is going to start the key points of the text, and we're doing a flyover, right? So this is kind of a a survey glance, a tour of Genesis 6, 11 um, and forward. So here we go. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So this is, this is part that you definitely got to know. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so we're going to talk about this a whole lot more whenever we get to why the flood. But just at the beginning, do you know why he flooded the earth? Because it was deserving of being flooded by the Creator God. There is violence and corruption across the entire earth at this time. And so, why the flood? We're going to come back to it again later. But because he says he's going to, this is punishment. We're going to come back to this. But sin must be punished by a holy God. We live in a world right now, and we live in a nation right now where who are we to tell somebody whose sin is deserving of punishment? We are nobody. Ricky is nobody. I do not get to tell Latasha what is sin and what's not sin. God's Word does. We simply communicate that. Well, here is God saying to Noah, I'm destroying this because, look at the totality of this, the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. You know what we also see? You know why you, what you need to be hearing? That the flood's going to come because God determines by his own counsel, not by ours and not by any other man who wants to interject or advise, but God's going to flood the earth. You know why? Because he's the creator and he gets to determine the purpose and the end of all things whenever he wants. Like that's the, the understanding we should have of God at this point is that this is a massive God who not only spoke all things into existence, but at his will, he can say, I will destroy all things because with this I am displeased. And we don't get to tell him otherwise. We don't get to negotiate with a God that big. Now, the problem for us is that we're very comfortable with our God. I mean, we're really incredibly comfortable with our God. I think so much so that yes, while he was a friend of sinners, 
And yes, while he has brought us into his fold, I fear that God could move, like Jesus could walk into this room and be seated right here. And we'd just be like, hey, how are you doing? And we would just be so incredibly comfortable. Y'all, he is holy and he is mighty and he is infinite and he is beyond anything that you and I could ever imagine. And he takes no counsel with us for why he wants to do what he wants to do. He speaks the world, he destroys the world, He's God. We are not. He is massively, infinitely bigger than anything you and I should ever be comfortable with, except for this, that whenever Christ died on the cross for us and we were given his righteousness, then God looked at us and he said, you are my son. Come to my table. You are my daughter. Sit here with me for all of eternity. But that's That's the thing we got to get right there. Don't lose that moment where God, we've been watching him. He's walking with mankind through their sinfulness. And at this point, he says, you know what? I'm God. This is done. And he tells Noah what his plans are. He didn't have to tell him. But anyways, God's greatly displeased. Now we're in verse 14. Okay, some of these, they just keep bridging. So God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I don't know what gopher wood is, okay? Like, I barely know what a baseboard in a house is. So, But he tells me to go get some gopher wood, make rooms in the yard, cover it inside and out with pitch. There's something really, really cool with the word pitch there. We're coming back to it. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. It's breadth 50. It's height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door on the ark and inside. Make it with lower, second, third decks. The only reason I'm pointing that out to you is so that you get the magnitude and the scope of this. Next time you go to a football game, you need to understand that this ark is going to be a football and a field and, a, and half of another one long. Okay, so we're talking huge dimensions, 450 feet long. So whenever you're sitting there and you're sitting, at, you should actually not sit um, at the 50-yard line. You need to sit, go stand at the other end zone and imagine a football field and then half of another football field. That's going to be the length of it. Okay, so 450 feet long, 75 feet wide. Okay, so I don't have a good, good approximation for that for you, but if you take, if you go stand beneath a basketball goal that's 10 foot high and then make that seven more taller, then that gives you an idea of 10 foot and then you got to do like another one. So you got seven and a half um, basketball goal lengths right there, and then it's going to be 45 feet high. Okay, so you get an idea. Y'all, this is just a big boat, but this is not a yacht. And actually, it's kind of referred to by a lot of scholars as a floating box. Like, this is not how we would construct the ark. Um, This is more of like a floating box, but it's going to serve the purpose that it needs to. Just to give you an idea, if we are talking 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, the Titanic was 850 by 92 by 64. So it's not quite as long as the Titanic, okay? But we're still talking a pretty massive boat here. And it took me about 120 years to build it. That's why God, in, in the previous text we looked at last week, he said, uh, man is flesh. Uh, my spirit will not abide with him um, for until about 120 years. So there's a 120-year reprieve where Noah is preaching righteousness while he's building a boat. And these are the proportions for it. Now, the word pitch. The pitch is really, really cool. Okay. I know. Y'all get so excited about these things too. But you, this is pretty amazing. The word for pitch here in the Hebrew, is also used for the word atonement throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament. So he says, build this ark and cover it with pitch, which would make it watertight, by the way. That was the intent. It makes it watertight. 
Okay, so, so what you have here is this ark covered in pitch to make it watertight. But then the same word for pitch becomes a word for atonement throughout the rest of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew language. So the pitch, which would make the ark uh, watertight, while God's wrath is poured out on the world, this ark literally of salvation is held watertight by the pitch that covers it inside and out, much like the ark of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is held by the atonement that he has given to us. So there's a picture from the beginning to the end, and it just reminds us over and over and over that our salvation and the salvation of mankind is always through the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. Do you know why Noah built the ark? Because God said, build the ark. Do you know how Noah knew how to build the ark? Because God told him. Do you know how there was salvation? Because God shut them in. From beginning to end, any salvation of mankind in a sinful world is God's doing. So pitch is really, really cool. Salvation is always through the pitch that seals it all in, that atonement. Okay, so we're going to keep going. I'm doing, I'm going quick, okay? So verses 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is a breath of life under heaven. Everything, like that's a key word, everything that is on the earth shall die. But, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Y'all, this is just a somber reminder that Everything and everyone who is not in the ark will die. I mean, I don't know if I really grasp that. I tend to focus on the inside of the ark. I don't really tend to focus on the outside of the ark. You know what we're in danger of as a church? Focusing on the inside of the ark and not the outside of the ark. Can you imagine being Noah whenever that door shut? Not much is said about the destruction of the, the, the loss there. But to be on that ark and know that, yes, you and your family are safe and God is preserving a remnant, absolutely. But to also know that there's the rest of the world that is being absolutely flooded and washed away and destroyed. Just a somber reminder of that. This also reminds us that for everything in which there's a breath of life, for all flesh, which we're going to see in the next verse, like, y'all, there is totality here. I'm one of these. I hold to a global flood, not a local flood. I've got reasons for that. But for me, I look around and I see signs confirming the evidence of a global flood. But also just hold to God's word. Watch. As we continue to read everything, all things, everything that has a breath of life, all people, all flesh, there's death. If this were a local flood, then the people would have just left the region and gone to the other side of the mountain. That's one idea. The other one is this. Water is a self-seeking substance. Okay, so do you know why parents, you panic whenever that bathwater keeps running? Because you know once it reaches the side, it's going to spill over. If this were a local flood held by the local mountains, then once the water reached the crest of those mountains, then it would just spill over because water is always going to seek to level itself. Instead, what we're told in Scripture, you're about to hear this, that it rises above all the mountains. So it didn't reach a mountain and then rise above it locally because there's an invisible barrier here. But we're told the entire earth is going to be covered. There's no fleeing this destruction. There's no outlasting God's wrath. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Now, why do, do no one of them get to go in? Remember Genesis 6, 8 through 9. So if you weren't with us, Genesis 6, 8 through 9, this is incredibly important. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So in his generation, Noah alone walked with God. 
He's the one who had his heart set so, so adamantly on who God was. He had this, this completely entranced view, this captivation with who God is, that he's blameless in his generation. He doesn't step to the left or the right. He doesn't turn left or right. He's blameless. His generation can't even blame him of wickedness. And he's righteous. So he gets to, he gets to go in. Okay, I'm continuing on. Then we're going to start um, here pretty soon. We're going to start jumping. Um, verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and to keep them alive with you. And also take with you every, uh, then I'm jumping to 21, I'm sorry. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you. So this is just to kind of get that context. But I've, I've got to answer this question, not because it's in the sermon, but because I get asked this quite a bit. And then you can judge me however you want to. But it's an important question, evidently, in people's minds whenever I say believe in a global flood. Okay, where are the dinosaurs? Where are they? They're on the ark. Okay, I have no problem with the dinosaurs being on the ark. I do keep in mind that, yes, some of them are as tall as skyscrapers, but I just think that in the sovereignty of God and the, like, just the common sense of Noah, like they're not bringing in the skyscraper brontosaurus, which I don't think is a real dinosaur anymore, but the brachiosaurus. Like they don't, they're not bringing in the skyscraper ones. They're bringing in the baby ones. They're bringing in the smaller ones. I'm okay with dinosaurs being on the ark, but then where are they now? Well, there was a global flood. I have a, I have a feeling that whenever there's a global flood um, and the firmament comes crashing down, that there's going to be some cataclysmic change in the world that we're still feeling the ripple effects right now. So where are the dinosaurs, Ricky, in this? I think that they're on the ark. How do I explain the carnivores with the herbivores? I don't know. Like, sovereignty of God shut their mouths. I don't know. Okay, so for a season, he, he let them last as vegans. I don't know. But I just think that they were there. All right, so I have to answer that, but it, it did usher in this radically different world. Um, and then I want to just point this out, too. But Ricky, as we were reading it, it said that he was to take seven of some animals and, and two of these um, what happens whenever Noah and his family survive the ark? They make sacrifice. So God, from the beginning, is giving instructions so that whenever you come out, you can worship me through right sacrifice while allowing the creatures to continue. Okay, so also in this two-by-two, two, in this family, I got three quick things for you. Utter desolation was not God's intent. He preserved. He could have wiped every one of them out. He could have started all over again. Utter desolation was not his intent. Bringing holiness, by the way, was. Okay. Number two, his judgment was to destroy the old, punish sin entirely, purge it from the world so that a new world would begin. Okay. So as we, he's talking about the, the death of everything. Keep in mind, he's not killing everything. He's not destroying everything. He's holding a remnant. He's punishing sin. He's purging the world so that he can have a new world that is more intently focused on who he is and his holiness. And then we will see throughout the Bible that the old must be put to death for the new to rise. Put death to the old self. Take it off and put on the new self. But the old must die so that the new can take precedence. And that's the picture of baptism we get. Noah, and that tells us, it tells us that in Peter. That Noah and the ark and, and them surviving through the flood... Noah is being held in this salvation, this ark of salvation, and there's water everywhere, and it's removing and purging away sin from the world so that there can be a new creation. Like, it's, a, it's actually a pretty good mirror. Totally different sermon. That's one we can get to on baptism and understanding it more, but, but it does remind us of this, that for there to be new, there must be death. We don't get to hold on to who we are. And y'all, man, we're good at that. We like to hold on to knickknacks and, and, and antiques and everything in our real life, in our tangible life. So do we in our personal spiritual life. 
We like to hold on to that. That's who I am. Yeah, that's what God sought to renew and make new. All right, so just quick gleaning. Okay, verse 22. Noah did this. What did he do? Everything. You know how crazy that is, by the way? He's in an arid desert land, and he's supposed to go build a boat for 120 years and make it 450 cubit long. A cubit is either 18 inches or 24 inches, depending on which interpretation you go with. It doesn't matter. It's a boat in the desert. That's just crazy. And then two of two. God's like, hey, you're going to bring in two of every animal. By the way, I don't think every species was there. I think that God in his wisdom would bring those which would then recreate the species that we have now. I think that we've lost animals through the flood that we look back now and we find in the fossil record. That's totally, that's me going on a tangent. So I'm going to stop right there. But you have to imagine what in the world is going through his head whenever God says, Two of every animal, you and your family build a 450-foot boat because I'm about to destroy everything. What's going through his head, we are not told. What we are told is this, y'all, that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. All that God commanded him. Whatever God commanded him to do, he did it. And for this, he's now known throughout all the generations and throughout all of eternity for his faithfulness. What if he told me to do that? He tells me to do less than build a boat and bring in two of every animal on the earth. He tells me to do so much less. He tells me to cross the room and make a disciple right there. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, this seems pretty tough right now. You know, this is why Noah. God wanted to preserve a man like that. So, biblical truth. That... That our responsibility as Christians, y'all, just keep this in mind. Our responsibility is not in perfection and obedience. Our responsibility, I'm, I'm sorry, is not in, um, our responsibility as Christians is not in perfection and results. We're just to be obedient. Everything else is God's. If he calls you to it, you be obedient. He's going to do whatever it is. So Noah, no doubt, has got to have questions. I mean, he's a man like us, and yet he's just like, okay. God said it, so I'm just going to go do it, and everything else is him. All right, seven one. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Y'all, God commends the righteousness of Noah. Oh, my goodness. Do you do know that we get to hear one day, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Like even today, when you fail to be obedient, his righteousness has so covered you. He's forgiven you in every single way. You can list everything that you've done wrong. And yet, if you're a child of God, he says, oh, I absolutely know. And I sent my son for you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. He commends Noah. We will be commended for our righteousness, not that it was our own, but that he gave to us. That's just ridiculous, y'all. If we are not humbled by that, if we sit here and we pound our chest and say, look at what I've done as a Christian, look how much I've grown, look how holy I am, look how I've got this together, look how I'm here and they're there. Oh my goodness, we forgot that we have been absolutely slain so that his righteousness can be in us. Or we're not in his righteousness at all, in his righteousness at all and we're holding to our own salvation. But if we've been saved by God, then we have no reason to boast. Noah has no reason to boast in his salvation except he only did what God called him to do. So, one day we will be commended. But y'all remember that for the greatness of Noah and his righteousness, last week we talked about the double imputation of Christ. We have given him our sins. He has given us his righteousness. All we know is grace. I mean, it's crazy. 
How dare we forget it? And yet we do. Verse 11. By the way, in, in, in verse 5, Noah's going to continue to do all that God has called him to do. Let me hit that real quick. Um, there was no... Uh, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. There's Noah's obedience again. There's, there's no questioning. It's not no rationalizing, no advising, no grumbling, no complaining, no worrying, no telling God, I think that we should probably reconsider this notion. Like, there's, not, there's just Noah's obedience again and again. It's just a good one for me to... I, I need to have a sign that says, Remember Noah in my office. It will remind me of so many things, so many attributes of Noah. Okay, now we're in 11. 600 year of Noah's life. He's, he's an old man. Okay. I was in the pool yesterday and I was reminded how old I'm feeling already. So 600 years, Noah, there he is. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, by the way, if you want to map all those out, you can. You're looking at a year span here uh, that, they're, that they're on the boat. Okay, and then it says, verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. But in verse 11, it refers to the fountains of the great. They burst forth in the windows of heaven. So once they're secure, the flood begins. There's two sources of water. Two sources of water. you got to get this. The, the heavens open up and it begins to rain. Not a big deal to us in Arkansas, right? Huge deal to them who are in a desert land. And not only that, but if I'm in Arkansas, I can drive long enough. And if I drive west, then I can eventually pass over that cloud because that cloud's going to keep moving. And I'm going to get into Oklahoma and we can just bypass that. We can, we can outrun the rain or we can outlast the rain. Not here. This is an entirely different kind of rain. And it's a, it's, if you go to the Hebrew, it refers to an actual downpour. So as you're driving, the kind that would actually cause you to, to drive a little bit slower or even pull over on the side, a torrential downpour, that's what it's going to be doing from heavens. And then it says that the, the great fountains of the deep burst forth. So there's subterranean waters, that we and those burst forth. And so there's rain falling down, there's water rising up, and these are meeting, and it is possible for the entire earth to be flooded. It's possible because it's happened. Y'all, this is a cataclysmic event that we have not seen and we will not see again. The closest picture that we have of this is back in Genesis 1, whenever the earth was without void and God creates light and there's water on the face of the entire earth. Before there's land, there's just a water world. And so this is almost like a decreation of what God has created. God created everything and saw that it was good. And in Genesis 6, he sees that world again and he's going to decreate it and flood it entirely again, except for one remnant whom he has decided to hold to. So cataclysmic events, rain from above, rain from below. Verse 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And then these powerful six words, and the Lord shut him in. Noah might have had a pulley system, sure. Like that just seems logical if I'm building a boat that big. I'm going to find a way to shut the door before the rains come. Maybe. I think what matters, though, is the Lord shut him in. God could have left that out of his word, but he didn't. The Lord shut him in. You guys, you and I can run to the cross, that ark of salvation for us, where his blood was spilled for us. But unless God shuts us in and clings to us and holds us fast, then there is no salvation because you and I would totally mess it up. But God shut them in. I just think it's good verbiage right there that you need to be looking at, that, that as everyone has done what God has called them to do, the Lord shuts the door. The Lord seals the door. They're shut in. And you know what? They're not coming out until when? The Lord says, you can leave now. That's at the end. Okay, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that 
all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, and the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's math too heavy for me, and I didn't get out my calculator, but 15 times 18 inches, and then that's how high the tallest mountains were absolutely covered. How do I know that? How in the world could I be so, so naive, the world would say, to believe such a thing? Because God's word is there. And yet theologians and scholars will say, yes, but it's actually probably a local flood, except that that totally contradicts science. Totally contradicts science. I've already covered this. We fear that water filling up in a bathtub because if that side of the tub is uh, symbolic of a mountain, we know that the water is going to spill over because water is always going to seek itself. Now, if you could make your bathroom watertight, which might be cool, okay, if you could, then once it spills over, then it's going to keep filling up over here until eventually the water meets its own level and then it will continue to rise. That's the only way for all the mountains. And I'm just going to humbly say this. I'm going to side with this one, with all the high mountains. I could be wrong on my science. I'm not going to be wrong scripturally. All the high mountains were covered. I'm okay with that. Because Moses didn't write this of his own accord. He only wrote as God inspired him and moved him to write. So either God's got it wrong, not Moses. Either God's got it wrong and God doesn't have an understanding of what global and local and regional is, or we do. I'm going to go global on this one, okay? If we forget what Scripture says of itself, that it is God-breathed, and that men only wrote as God moved them to write, and this is God's Word through His Spirit, held for us by His Spirit, understandable by His Spirit, then, oh my goodness gracious, if it says all, it means all. Okay, good. All right, I'm going to keep going. What's the result? Verse 21 through 24, y'all, everything dies. All, 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 everything, everyone. All flesh died. He blotted out every living thing, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. Only Noah was left and those who were with him. Y'all, it's there, like... Why do I keep emphasizing this? Because you need to understand the totality of God's wrath on an unbelieving world. This was not, I have a small problem with sin, so I'm sending a small flood. Sin has so grieved God that he's going to decreate the good that he created. We're going to keep going. 8-1, we're close to our walkthrough. But God remembered Noah, and God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Two really cool things. This does not mean that God forgot about him. I mean, if God's watching all of creation and all of mankind and all the animals, he's greatly reduced his number. So I don't think that God has forgotten that there are about eight people still alive and so many animals. I mean, this is so it doesn't mean that what it actually refers to is that he's now decided to move on his behalf. It doesn't mean he actually forgot about him and that he was there. It means that God remembers now like God has determined. That's what the original thrust of that, that term was that God decided now to act on Noah's behalf. So that's what that means. The wind blew over. Okay, so real, real quick, I, I'm not trying to squeeze, um, squeeze too much out here, but it's just cool that the word for wind there is the same Hebrew word for spirit. And if we're seeing the creation and the decreation and then the recreation of all things, then God causes a, a wind to blow upon the earth, and this is how he will dry it all out. It reminds me of Genesis 1, whenever the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the deep. I mean, here is Genesis recreated 
or Genesis or the creation 2.0, however we want to dub it in our modern society. But there is that wind. There's that spirit again. God is sovereign and he's near his creation and destruction in all of this. I'm going to keep going. Verse 11. And the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth. Now notice I left out the first trip of the dove and the raven. You know why the raven didn't return? Because ravens can eat dead flesh. Okay. So carrion birds. Like there's plenty of death all around. I think that the raven was having the time of his life. But the dove, the dove brings back the, the olive branch. That's what I wanted to look at. Y'all, brings back the vegetation. That's really the sign. Noah has already seen at this point that the earth is drying out. But if there's no vegetation, then life is not sustainable. And so that's what we're really looking for. That dove returns with an olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That you may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. So Noah and his family in his obedience never moved before God ever directed them. And God says, come out. They were provided for, they were preserved for, they were protected from the wrath of God. Like from beginning to end, that's what happens. Noah, you're going to build an ark. And I'm going to flood the world because of the sin and the violence that's within it. And then I'm going to preserve you. And I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to bring you back out of that. And I'm going to provide everything you need. That's the story. Okay, so now why the flood? It's very clear. Verse 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So it's really going to come down to this point of that. God must punish sin. We're not talking, I think we have this kind of idea of the early world, that they must have been holier and, and better and more righteous than we are today. They weren't. I mean, it was to the degree that violence and sin had filled the earth. Y'all, like, we live in the days of Noah right now. We're going to look at that here in just a second. Turn on your TV and see the violence and see the sin. Walk through society and see the violence and see the sin. Listen to the radio. Hear violence and sin. Like just listen to the conversations that we have with one another. Violence and sin. It's filled the earth. And God at that point said, I'm going to flood the earth. And what we're going to be looking at next week or the following is that he's, he's already said he's no longer going to flood it, everything. Instead, there's going to be no water. Now there's going to be fire. But God's wrath on this world is coming. Praise God. He was patient and is patient. Because you know what? When the ark was sealed, nobody else was getting in. It was too late. There will come a day whenever it's going to be too late. And all of those that were kind of kicking stones awkwardly by saying, well, I'll probably get that tomorrow. Or, man, I really should be doing that. I'm not, trying to, I'm not imposing guilt. I'm trying to give us an awareness that I think we need to learn from Noah. Because it tells us this in Matthew and Luke. That the world will continue on completely oblivious to the fact that judgment is going to come. And the Son of Man will come so quickly. And the ark will be shut and it will be too late. And yet we're in the ark, right? So we're okay. 
I'm praying that God continues to soften my heart, y'all, because I'm, I'm just, you know, whenever you've been given much, you get used to having much, and so you just delight in the much that you have, and you forget what others don't have. Y'all, we've been given much, eternally. You know who you were. You know who you were. I know who I was. And I know the old me that wants to fight up inside of me and what wants to take root. And if you think that, that there's no temptation that is near you, it's because you're not paying attention. Just like God told Cain, sin and temptation are so near you and it seeks and its heart is to destroy you. It is against you. And we're told in Peter that Satan prowls around seeking those whom he can devour. Like it's all around us. And they don't even know. We're telling them, we're like, hey, we're telling them Noah was proclaiming righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. Even before that, remember Enoch? I think that'd be like his great-grandfather. The Enoch had Methuselah and the Methuselah had Lamech and then Lamech. Noah, I'm not good with family trees, so I don't know if that's a grand or a great or whatever that is. But down throughout the generations, we're told in Jude, the book of Jude, at the end of the Bible, that Enoch had actually warned the ancient world that God was standing in judgment and sending his angels. So Enoch warns then, and then they go through Methuselah, then there's Lamech, and then we get Noah. And Noah proclaims for another 120 years, praise God that he is patient, but only a remnant turns back to him. Even then, and it's only because he said, you got to get in that boat. And we live in the days of Noah. So violence and sin had filled the earth. And if you and I are sitting around, you're like, God, what is going on here? Like, this is just horrible. Yeah, it is. But we don't get how horrible it is. We forget the holiness of God. Right? So, so we must always remember that God's holiness supersedes everything else. And in light of God's holiness, sin must be punished. All right, so, so you and I sit here today. We see that there's a true wrath of God for sin, and it's coming again. One day, all accounts will be settled. And praise God, if we're Christians, we're going to be in his presence. But in this in-between, may we be grieved over those who aren't seeking him. We've got to be proclaiming righteousness. Because you know what we see? Noah proclaimed it, and none came in. But what we see from, from the time of Christ's inception, through Acts, through the movement of the Holy Spirit, that every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be brought in. Not all of them, but some of them. They will hear his voice because they are his sheep and he is the shepherd. Nailed it. Okay, no shepherd with shepherds here. Okay, but that's what's going to happen. His glory will fill the earth and he will bring in those who are his. And we get to be the Noahs who are the heralds of righteousness telling others. There is salvation only here in the Ark of the Cross. Sorry if that bothers you. It's incredibly offensive. It absolutely is. Everything that you and I were and all the goodness and all the skill and all the talent and everything we like to hold to, that's not why we've been saved. We've been saved by the grace and the mercy of God for his own reasoning. We don't know why, but we get to respond to it. So how dare we, if it wasn't our salvation to earn, how dare we waste it right now and keep it for ourselves? The gospel doesn't end with us. It propels us outwards. Okay, so I want to keep going. But until we grasp the holiness of God, then the flood is always going to be too extreme. Unless we see that God is holy 
And I don't mean like holy of, hey, that's a pretty perfect looking person right there. I mean a holiness which transcends all of eternity and time and every rationale. A holy God must punish sin. But until we see that he is holy, then the flood is always going to be too extreme. I mean, he flooded a whole world. That seems that's extreme, right? You know what it does show us? It reminds us the extremities, like the extreme extent to which God will go to bring holiness in his creation. And that's not even the most extreme one. We see him do this one other time. And that's whenever God steps into his own world and is beaten, mocked, and scorned. That's extreme. That the God who created the world, who tried to redeem the world, who has patiently waited on the world to call upon him, who has sought to save everyone, and whenever they don't and they kill the prophets and the martyrs and they turn their back on God, then for that God to say, you know what, I'm stepping into my creation and I'm going to take all the sin that they don't even know that they have and I'm going to place that upon me and I'm going to be beaten and mocked by my own creation so that I can bring them home and show them holiness by pouring out my wrath on my own son. That's extreme. That's extreme. God is holy and he will punish sin. We need to quit worrying about who he's going to punish and when he's going to punish. We need to worry about their salvation. So it's just a great reminder. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going here. But he had to do it. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Praise God that he put our death on Christ and Christ gave us his righteousness. Why the ark? Because God we see has always offered salvation. Always offered salvation. And the only way to do that during a flooded world is to have him build a boat that's 450 feet long and to preserve a remnant for himself. So the problem, see, is they, as Noah proclaimed righteousness for 120 years, the problem was not that people didn't know. It's more that they didn't care. It's more that they didn't understand the seriousness of it. Enoch warns on Methuselah walks with God. Enoch is translated into heaven. Um, and Noah's telling them, like, all oh, this, the problem was not that salvation was not offered. It's just that they didn't want salvation. They didn't want it. We got to just deal with that reality. Sinners sin because they want to sin. It's who we are. They didn't want salvation, so they didn't flee to the ark. They didn't see the seriousness of it. Of it. So ignorance wasn't the problem. They heard the preaching, his obedient preparation. Sinfulness was the problem. That's the world we live in right now. Sinfulness is the problem. That's where we get conflicted, honestly, as a family. We love our nation. We are proud to be Americans. But we see sinfulness just running rampant. Remember what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that nobody who's read the Bible should be surprised at where the world is right now. And it's just going to get worse. One day, this, this joy of gathering together may not be like this. And it may not be 50, and it may not be 100, it may not be 150. It may be that we are scattered back into houses. They're doing that in other nations. They're having to meet in homes and, and have underground churches because they're literally being persecuted for their faith. Not, mm, nice shirt. You know, not persecution like that. I mean, actual, true persecution. They are dying for their faith. Keep going a little bit further. So salvation was near, and salvation has always been the same. Common question in the Old Testament, how were men and women saved? The same way that we're saved today. By grace, through faith. That's it. Go all the way back to Genesis 6, 8, and, and Noah found favor with God. And if you remember last week, another word for favor there is grace. Noah found grace with God. 
So God had grace on Noah, and then Noah's, that grace cultivates itself into faith. So by grace, through faith, that's how Noah and all of the Old Testament saints were saved, by grace through faith. You watch that pattern. They found favor. They found grace. Their faith is right there. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, and I'm trying to accelerate because I'm very very aware of time. I want to be cognizant of that. But my goodness, like this judgment on the world is a sombering reminder for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Actually, turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, 5 through 10. I got this passage, and I got one more for you. And then we were going to sing of the great grace of our God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. It says, even when we And Paul's writing to believers, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's crazy that we were dead and he's brought us. Now he's seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Any of us who boast in our salvation, we must do it in two very, very humble ways. Praise God that he has made me his own. Praise God because I wasn't worth it. We were dead. We weren't... God didn't throw us a life preserver whenever we were drowning in an ocean. He swam to the ocean depths, right? Remember that R.C. Sproul quote? He swam to the ocean depths, brought us up, resuscitated us, gave us new life. We were dead. We weren't out in the ocean saying, hey, come save me right now. It wasn't a result of our works. It wasn't a result. It's just so that no one may boast. By grace through faith, that's what, that's what held Noah. That's what holds us. How were they saved in the Old Testament? They found favor with God. They found grace with God. Their faith. They looked forward to the cross that they knew was coming somehow. We look back at the cross and his future coming. Okay, so just in conclusion, wrap this all up. Go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 39. This is in Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39. And it's also, by the way, in Luke 17. Matthew 24, 36 through 39. But concerning that day and hour, this is when God returns. This is, man, I wish more authors right now on the Christian bestseller list, I wish they would read some of these verses, okay? So, or at least this one. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. We do not know when Christ is returning. He does say, as you look at the seasons and you see the fruit, you're going to know certain things, right? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor Jesus, the Son, but the Father only. So there's only one person who knows. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now watch this. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We can see the signs. We can feel it coming. We can feel the swelling. We have that longing and desire. But in Noah's day, you know what they weren't doing? They weren't all consumed with like this, this view of God and wrestling. Again. Like they were just doing life as life was, 
eating, drinking, marrying. Life was going on as normal, and then the judgment came suddenly, and they all perished. You and I live, and we walk in the days of Noah. We live in a world that's eating and drinking and marrying, and with no mind of God. And judgment will come, and it will come swiftly. And whenever it comes, it's too late. I need to be humbly reminded by God that I'm to be obedient. God, we've been given a great charge. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given unto me. That's the most important part of the Great Commission. All authority is his. And with all authority being his, he says, go make disciples of all nations. Teaching, preaching, proclaiming, baptizing, all that I've taught you. But then whenever we come here, I think that I think it's just always be good to be reminded of the gospel. We were brought into the ark of salvation by God because of his grace towards us through faith. That flood was intense. I mean, it was extreme. It's, a, it's the old creation that was so good. He flooded it. He destroyed it. And yet he preserved salvation. And that's the same for us. It's the same for those that we walk alongside every single day. Don't worry. God, what's going on in this world? Sin seems to be everywhere he knows. He absolutely knows. If we don't think he knows, we got to check our view of God. Infinitely, wonderfully, immaculately majestic, full of all grandeur. He holds all of time and eternity and everything in his hands, and it's all his. And rest assured, justice will come. I just think that we should be moved by the same compassion that moved Jesus, that we step into that darkness to save those and bring them in. So praise God that he's holy. Praise God he will settle all accounts for sin. But we also need to pray, God, give us the, the equipping of your Holy Spirit to be obedient. And I think also the humility. Remind us that you brought us in. We didn't just walk in on our own. This wasn't Disneyland where we just got on the ride because we wanted to. This was, this was an invitation in. And he shut the door. Let's pray. For God, teach us. Teach us your holiness again. Remind me again and again and again that I'm not the center of all of my life. Remind me that salvation is yours and it belongs to you. And remind me that judgment is real. And the very judgment that is coming upon the world and its sinfulness that will come by fire. That wrath of God that should have been for me and that would be for me. You've laid that wrath upon Jesus Christ. So Lord, teach us not to sin again. Give us a distaste for ourself and teach us to savor the Savior that has come for us. If you flooded the world because of sin and there was a vastly smaller population, Lord, how much greater will your judgment be? So Lord, teach us to be obedient to what you've called us to do to go spread your glory through making disciples so that you can be praised by even more voices throughout all of eternity. You are holy, we are not, and we are grateful that you have saved us. Praise on your son's holy name. Amen.